Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, I am Ezra Klein, and this is a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network, our new podcast network. It's awesome. It's exciting. This particular podcast was recorded uh, at the Vox Conversation, the the conference I told you about a couple weeks ago on the show. It was a really fun time. Um, This was the first live interview podcast I've done, which was a total blast. And I had on a return guest, Senator Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, Uh, one of my favorite guests from before. We had a a great conversation about rebuilding trust in American life, about what politicians have done maybe to give that trust up, to make people cynical, what this era in politics means and and how to navigate it in a way that allows people to be alive to its dangers without losing their soul. At the end, we talk about a lot of policies that are out of the mainstream. We talk about a universal child allowance. We talk about a universal basic income. We talk about single payer, all kinds of things political correctness on campus. Uh, That is a very fun lightning round, one of the most fun I've done. And unexpectedly to me, when I asked him about universal basic income, Booker came up with something, a response that sure sounded to me like a man who is thinking about a holistic platform for the 2020 election. Given that he's an oft-rumored Democrat for that campaign and given that he's really been all over recently, uh, I think that is a particularly worthy piece of the interview to listen to. So don't give up before they end. Um, That is right there at the back of the interview. And the way he is thinking about it and the way he is trying to add an emotional dimension to what is normally a policy platform is pretty interesting in my view. Uh, As always, a couple quick requests. Uh, Check out my other podcast, The Weeds. We also did a Weeds Live from the conference. That should be up as well. I think you'll enjoy it. Check out I Think You're Interesting from Todd Vanderwoof, Vox's Critic at Large. It is a great show of long-form interviews like this one of fascinating cultural figures. Todd is a genius on these matters. I am loving the show, and I think you would like it too. Again, that is I Think You're Interesting. Uh, speaking of people I think are interesting, here is Senator Cory Booker. Did you, did you pick that music? Uh, no. Kim Last has been slaving over the music choices like she's been slaving over everything else. So uh, yeah, she deserves a round of applause. But she's going to be excited, you noticed. But she's got a great last name, too, in the whole sort of biblical way. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a little tension in the back room. So, you know, we we got in each other's faces. It was very... But, you know, there's a reason this happened. Uh, Because he confessed after this happened that he's in Eden in literally three days. But I ate today. Yeah, and now you're cranky. I'm not cranky. I'm cranky because I think you noticed your body... I was very much into experimenting with myself when I was an athlete. That's why I became a vegetarian, like experimenting with diet and seeing how different diets affect you. I just read more and more about intermittent fasting, and now it's something that's a part of my lifestyle. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad it's working and out. And the data you. on um, <laughs> <laughs> the data on cancer, on uh, Alzheimer's, uh, on 
sticking to itness, like versus just general mm -hmm. calorie restriction, is incredible. So look, you're a data guy. If, if I can send you some great uh, stuff, if you're interested. I'm interested. I'm interested. I, yeah. I'm interested. I, I, tried, I will of... say that I failed out eventually of intermittent fasting. But what I didn't fail out of is asking you about American politics. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want me to talk about your dad body that you're getting and, and things like that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm real aware of the dad bod. Okay. Um, speaking of, this is not going to work as a transition. <laughs> so when we last talked, we, had, we were talking in a pretty different environment. Yeah. And we had a discussion that was really about the spiritual dimensions of your politics. And what I wanted to talk a little bit about here today, or at least to begin with, is the sort of moral dimensions of the politics we're in now. Something I've been reflecting on a little bit is in 91, E.J. Dion wrote this great book called Why Americans Hate Politics. And we're now 25 years later. And if you rewrote that book, it would be called Americans Fucking Loathe Politics. <laughs> and I take Trump and a lot of what's going on as in some ways an expression of the public's anger about the space in which we're supposed to come together and make collective decisions. How do you make Americans stop hating politics? Well, I, so first of all, I agree with you in some ways that Donald Trump is an expression or a symptom of deeper issues that are going on. And, um, but I, but I, I almost want to try to take you a little deeper and say that our frustrations with our politics has got to go deeper into, I think, a lot of frustrations with American life right now. Um, I mean, you and I are, are, you can mark our lives as being this interesting 30, 40 year uh, period in American history where uh, the data is just shocking to me about what we inherited from our parents and grandparents as far as a country and what we're, we, we in our generation is experiencing. And, and I, I, I love data. We've had this conversation before. Um, when I was first elected to be mayor, it, it's a, it, I'm running a big city, but we often elect people. Um, no, no disrespect to our president, who have no experience running complicated bureaucracies. And so I'm running a billion-dollar operation. And I, a lot of very important pillars of management I learned. One of them is the, the urgent importance of having data and dashboards that you can look at every day. I, I had a saying that, God, we trust, but everybody else bring me data. Um, um, and so when I became a United States senator, I wanted to pull down in my mayoral reflex, what's the data on this country? And if I'm going down there to expand opportunity for New Jerseyans, what are the important dashboards? And I began to look at a lot of the economic data. And I want to get you to, to, to the issue of the spiritual, I think, crisis that we're in. And I'll, I'll use that word. But uh, the surface data I began to notice is that you know, we were number one in the country on things that helped grow the economy and grow it in a very equitable fashion, helping more people. In fact, my father and mother really benefited from a, a period of economic growth that lifted literally my father from poverty to the middle class. And that was a combination of the, the growing economy as well as our, our growing inclusion as a country. But we were the number one country on the globe for infrastructure and uh, investment high up there in terms of percentage in GDP. We were the number one educators on the planet Earth. We used to have the best precise percentage of people on the planet who were graduating from college. Um, we had number one on in investments in science and research. Uh, everything, and most people don't know five, six, seven aspects of this, from the touchscreen to the battery uh, to the GPS, all are common collective investments in research and science through government. Um, we used to be the top of all those indices. So the World Economic Forum keeps data. They rank countries by competitiveness. They rank countries uh, on an innovation index. They rank countries' uh, health and well-being. 
And you can see that America was at the top of all these things in, in about 34 years ago, and now we've fallen out, out of that area. And, and I always say that, people, that, that other countries are out-Americaning us. Uh, we were the number one infrastructure on the planet Earth. We've trashed that inheritance, and now we're out of the top 10. Uh, we were the number one uh, educators. Uh, now not only are we out of the top 10 for percentage of population graduating from college, but other countries watch what we did with young kids, and our competitors are outdoing us, universal preschool and the like. And again, I can show you the data of dollars invested in things like universal preschool produce multiples in terms of return for economic growth. So that's the, sort of the economic side of it all. But I think what, what, what part and parcel of that has been what's happening to the issue of well-being. So we still are the richest country on the earth, the biggest military on the earth. We still are the number one exporters of, of innovation and technology. Uh, but if you look at indices of well-being, it's sort of, it's actually shocking to me about uh, the state of America in terms of that wealth is not distributed in equitable ways as it is in our competitor nations. We've had stagnant wage, wages now in this country for decades. Uh, if you look at just physical health, not even mental health yet, but physical health, um, are, are on all these indices, our well-being is worse compared to other global competitors. Even life expectancy, the overall life expectancy, while, while going up in our competitor nations, is going down in the United States of America. And so I think there's something really going on here in our country that perhaps we're seeing part and parcel in our politics, but I really do worry about our ability to address, I think, what is a hunger. And, and this is where I'll, I don't want to give a, a, a nod to Donald Trump, but somebody saying that let's make America great again. I, uh, you hear all these people wanting to push back and say, America is great, America is great. But there is this feeling, and reflected in a lot of the data, that we have a lot of work to do to get back to being, how shall I say, at the top of indices that matter, not just in economic growth, but, but personal well-being and feelings of satisfaction within your country. And that's something that our politics is failing to address, to make people feel a sense of inclusion or a sense of that my country, my, my, the central sort of uh, a civic uh, circles uh, like we see here in Washington are really focused on the issues that, that, that matter. And, and, and this is something, in fact, I was sitting on the bus going to the White House today talking to a friend of mine in the Senate where I really respect Michael Bennett where he, he, he had uh, with him, his reading material was the CBO <laughs> budget report and showing me bad data about uh, what's happening with expenditures and revenue. Um, and, and I had with me World Economic Forum data on well-being in this, in, in this country. And we both just began to talk about how our politics, which is often, we, we and I think is a reflection of this environment where we can't talk to each other, or we're not finding ways to find the common ground, even though he and I know there's more common ground than we're finding, and that we've created such a toxicity in this country now, and this is the last example I'll give you, because it sounds like a filibuster to you, I'm sure, but the, the last example I'll give you is, so the primaries in the presidential election, there's many low points for me, but I have to say one of the lowest points for me as a Jersey guy was when I was sitting there watching the Republican primary, and I listened to... The, the highest level of American political leaders castigate Chris Christie for the grave sin of hugging the president of the United States. And it wasn't just, if you all know the context of that embrace, it was after a natural disaster in which many people in New Jersey died, people in my city uh, that I was mayor of at the time, thousands of homes destroyed, billions of dollars worth of damage, the state grieving 
President Obama comes down the plane, the two of them hug, and by the way, I'm a hugger, and it was not a good hug. Um, um, uh, it's one of those uncomfortable kind of guy hugs where you, you know, but, but, but think of where we've gotten in our political uh, dialogue now where we've so demonized each other, we've so whipped up, I think, some of the most negative um, aspects of our culture that two Americans who do have, and I worked with Chris Christie, found common ground. I could write a dissertation on our disagreements, but he was my governor and I was mayor of the largest city, had to forge a friendship, had to find ways to work together despite our disagreements to the benefit of Newark, and I could drive people around and show them the benefit. But how is it that at this level of politics, it's gotten so bad that even a, a common uh, a, a touch where we're demonizing each other so much is, is castigated and we're failing to create an environment where we can bring out the best of who we are and get back focused on what should be the ultimate focus, not just of our politics, uh, not just of our economic system. This is why I, I respect people like Arthur Brooks. I'm going to cut you here for a minute because yeah. I want to move into a piece of this, which is that broad picture. I think there's a lot of truth to it. But the vision of it you laid out, where you and Senator Bennett are sitting in a Senate bus talking about the problems facing America, where you and Governor Christie are sitting down and finding common ground, that is the vision of this that people, as far as I can tell, do not trust. They do not believe in. Right? You look at the election, and you had a consummate insider, right? somebody who could rattle off all of that data you, you could possibly imagine, as experienced as anybody who's ever run for president against someone who was extremely inexperienced and very far outside. And a lot of people looked at that and said, you know what, it is so broken in there, and I so completely do not trust the underlying motives of the people who are acting in theory in my, on my behalf, in my name, that we're going to take the flyer. So how do you restore that trust? Because you can, we can talk all we want about where the income is, but if they don't trust you or the folks you work with to actually be trying to raise it, to be trying to do the right thing on their behalf, right. then it goes nowhere. So, look, I, I, don't have an, I don't have an answer for how to restore that trust system-wide. I, I know what I try to do in my own uh, politics in my own state. But there's one a problem with, I have with the way you focus that question, when, because I think that's something that, that we should not be looking outside for answers. I, th- I think all of us, whether we're in media whether we're uh, in elected office or whether we're citizens. They love us in the media. I, I know the, that you are. The country are, is extremely you, happy. You, uh, I think it goes Congress, colonoscopies, media. <laughs> um, and, um, but, but why isn't this something that we all of us have an obligation to take a, a sense of responsibility? Um, and, and, and often we don't even understand how we're contributing to that. Like, so I was at the Humane Society's annual event um, this incredible group of people, and one of the best lobbyists uh, uh, is head of the Humane Society, comes to the Hill, gets Republicans and Democrats to come together on major things. One of the proudest legislative achievements I have is this major TOSCA bill, getting better regulatory framework for public chemicals. In that bill, we put in limitations on animal testing and uh, unnecessary animal testing. So proud of the whole bill as well as that element. So I'm at this society, and, and they're celebrating issues of compassion and kindness. It's like, I am so happy. I'm feeling really good. And someone comes up to me who just says they wanted to show me their, a tweet they tweeted out. And I'm reading this, and I was shocked. It was a tweet like a troll would do, saying very mean, I shouldn't even say mean, really vile things about one of the Republican leaders. And they were all happy that they had sent this vicious, actually, about what they had hoped would happen to this human being. And, I, and it just seemed so incongruent 
with the values of that person, but this is how we feel that it's okay to express ourselves in this environment. So I, I agree that, that politicians, um, uh, especially those seeking the highest office in the land, need to find a way to cut through and break through, and that's their strategy, and, and I think their authenticity is really important in all of that. But this is not something that's going to be solved by 535 plus the president and vice president people in Washington. I think it's something we have to start beginning to ask ourselves as a larger civic culture. Um, um, are, are we living in adherence to the deepest elements of our civic gospel? And we sing songs. We, we swear oaths, all of us, every single day to these ideals. I mean, how many, it's not a, just a rote routine thing you do when you put your hand on your heart. And, and you literally are swearing an oath to this ideal that we will be one nation under God, indivisible. How are we living those words? I have this saying about religion. Before you tell me about your religion, first show it to me in how you treat other people. Well, this civic gospel that is a, deeply a part of us, go to the Jefferson Memorial tonight if you have a chance. It ends with these God, this, this man, Jefferson, concluding that if this country is ever going to make it, we've got to mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, an unusual commitment to each other because this nation wasn't founded because we all look alike, pray alike, uh, descended from the same folks. We put out these very high ideals that were greater and more perfect than the imperfect people that called Native American savages in their founding documents or women not mentioning really at all or blacks were fractions of human beings. And so I I just, I I really want to be a part of us calling us back to the decency and the goodness that I know is at the core of our country but doesn't seem to be reflected as much by our, our public, in our public spaces. So I feel one thing I think is interesting about that is that there is a tension people feel between the stakes of the issues that we do face as a country, that the stakes of the questions that come before you, and in some ways how I think abstractly they would like to act. So I think here about Tom Perez when he was running for DNC chair. He had an applause line that... Democrats should treat, Democrats in Congress should treat Donald Trump with all the respect Mitch McConnell treated President Obama. And that was a big line in those meetings. Do you think he's right? So first of all, I have a lot of respect for Tom Perez and uh, consider him a friend and got in the trenches with him on things like fighting for the fiduciary rule. And I believe in that. But that's, that's so I came up through politics f- fighting against a very significant figure in New Jersey politics. It was a mayor named uh, Sharp James and would torch me in public. And it was a struggle for me. And I actually am saying this because I feel this sometimes with Donald Trump about how to react to him publicly. And I, I still remember coming back from an uh, interview. Um, you always get me so comfortable. I want to like confess my sins to you. But... Um, <laughs> Where I was upset with myself. That's why I let you give those long first answers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sort of lull you. You'd be very comfortable. <laughs> Look, the point is, is that I called Donald Trump a liar on national TV. And when I got off TV, I felt kind of bad because it actually violates my values. I'd rather, I don't want to say you are a lie. I can say you're lying, which is the right thing to do. And he was lying and he does lie quite often. But I, I, I didn't like to be crossing a line and, and sort of condemning his soul and, and the state of, of who he is. So I don't want to become what I'm in – in the Senate race, in, this, in my mayor's race, I used to say it all the time to my team, we cannot become what we're trying to replace. And I don't want to use the tactics that were, when they were used against me that I, that I, I deplore. I, don't, I just don't think you, you, you can separate the means from the ends in that way. And, and King said it more eloquently than I could. 
that darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that, that hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. So I don't think Democrats, and I hear this, I have these arguments on Twitter, I literally have these arguments with um, supporters or fellow Democrats all the time where they say, enough with the love and kindness stuff, Corey, we've got to fight. And I said, when, were they, when are they those mutually exclusive? I mean, was John Lewis engaging in hatred? No, but was he a tough fighter, one of the toughest people in all the civil rights movement? Yes. Uh, was Martin Luther King engaging in, in hate? Was he any less effective because of his gospel of love? No. In fact, he was more effective because of it. And so I think, again, we, 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 we lose our, a bit of our moral compass when we are demonizing other people. And it's the same thing that, and I know you agree with me on this because I listen to too many of your podcasts, but it's like our criminal justice system. We've become this retribution culture where we are... You know, and I worry about this because I've been engaged for three years now trying to reform the criminal justice system, and the, 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 what we all talk about is nonviolent offenders, nonviolent offenders, nonviolent offenders. But we as a country need to come to grips with the fact that there are a lot of people in jail for too long who are violent offenders as well. But for some reason, that's a lot harder <laughs> to have a conversation about because often we, who are way out of line with other nations in terms of uh, proportional punishment, um, I think too often are, are, are about retribution uh, than about justice. Um, and so I, I'm sorry. And maybe, you know, you know maybe I'm not going to be successful in life, <laughs> you know, but I just, don't, I just don't believe you need to, you need to be mean, you need to be deceitful, you need to practice the dark arts in order to win uh, uh, elected offices. And at least I've got a good body of evidence in my life that you don't have to choose those, those tactics. So you had a moment recently that I thought was actually interesting on this. You have struck me in your career as somebody who it is important to your identity that you have good relationships across the aisle, that it is important to your identity that you hear people out, that you're seen as bipartisan. And you testified against Senator Jeff Sessions when he was nominated for attorney general, which was an unusual thing to do and is something that will wound that reputation and would bring you in, in conflict with some of the Republicans that I know you like working with. How did you think about that decision? Why did you decide to take that step as opposed to to simply vote no? So that really was a difficult thing because I thought, I very consciously knew that it would erode, and it did, um, some of the good relationships I had with Republicans over that has resulted in a lot of benefit for my state and our ability to get some really good things done. And I and I and even in my calculations as I was thinking about doing it, and I say calculations because there really wasn't a choice for me in doing it. But I, as I was thinking it through, I, I literally, it was my hope and, and prayer that I had enough of a relationship built up with a lot of my colleagues that breaking this Senate tradition um, wouldn't break relationships. But I, I felt like I just had to do it. You have to understand that I still haven't gotten to the point where I can walk onto the Senate floor and not feel the gravity of the history um, that was there before. And and I'm conscious, I love my state, because my state's the only state in the union has two minorities, this black guy and Latino guy, and it like wasn't an issue in the campaign. Like, you know, Jersey's just like, hey, is this guy gonna do all right for us? We put him down there. But I'm not, I'm, I can't forget the um, gravity of being an African-American in the United States Senate, being the fourth African-American ever elected to the United States Senate, and all that Americans, black and white, Christian, Jewish, from all backgrounds, had to do. And my mom, who's brilliant, along with some of my staff members, <laughs> you know, it, I laugh because uh, my father died six days before I was elected to the Senate. 
And it was in a special election. So it's like elected, go down and swear yourself in. So I was really hurting. And so they made a decision to take me to see John Lewis before I went there, which I thought was a brilliant thing. And because uh, I just have this reverence for the man. And he's ridiculously humble. I mean, no swagger. You know, he's just, and, and I could see the meaning in his eyes of me doing this. And you look around his office and he's got these epic moments from the civil rights movement, pictures that we would all recognize. And then you kind of notice, oh, he's in that picture. And then when we leave, it's like my mom had just gone to church because she's now preaching gospel. And I don't know if any other United States senator in the history of America had a, a lecture from their mother walking through the halls on their way to be sworn in by the vice president. But my mom is going off on me, like, you know, don't forget where you come from. You know, don't forget the title doesn't make the man. The man's got to make the title. And all these things getting really deeply into this moving moment for her that this young lady who grew up, my mom grew up in a deeply segregated environment, um, knows, wears, tells stories of the pain and the, and the battles that had to get to the point where one day she would see her son in the United States Senate. And so I found a working relationship with Jeff Sessions. In fact, the meme that was in the, on the right that I saw on a lot of on the right was saying, Cory Booker is such a hypocrite because I stood with Jeff Sessions to give the award, the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was my co-sponsor to the people that walked, marched over the, uh, the um, Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, he and I stood together and did that, and I was deeply grateful that I could find a Republican co-sponsor and that he would be the guy. And so this was a struggle for me because I also knew where he stood on all the core issues to me that, that this country is slipping backwards on. I mean, the, the, what's going on with voter rights in the, in the United States of America right now is unconscionable to me. And when you have a federal, a federal judge supported by the agency, the agency that the U.S. attorney now leads fought to get North Carolina exposed as using, I think the language was, surgical precision to disenfranchise blacks when there are issues like police accountability which I know because the feds came in to Newark. And at first I was resistant and then exposed to me by showing the data guy the data that we have a serious problem in this country that even FBI Director Comey admits to that there is a serious problem with implicit racial bias, that there are lots of uh, great police chiefs now in America working against it. All these things, I could go on and on and on, immigration, private prisons, the very criminal justice reform bill that was one of my greatest moments in the United States Senate to get Chairman Grassley, who was preaching on the Senate floor against the efforts, to get to a point where he and I can get to my, my, one of my best moments ever as a United States Senator, was shaking hands with him on the Senate floor when we were negotiating the last parts of that bill. And the, one of the only people against it was Jeff Sessions. And so now he's going to be the U.S. attorney, voting rights, rights for gays and lesbians, uh, issues of, of policing in America, all these things, um, even marijuana policy, which is, a, to me, another chapter of American shame, I, I could not, I wasn't on the Judiciary Committee, so I didn't have a platform. I, I could not let this moment go without feeling that I did everything possible, not to demean him and call him a racist, I didn't attack his character, but to speak uh, as honorably as I could about the reasons why he should not be the U.S. attorney. And the moment, to just end with you, it just turns out that the, the way that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Grassley, who I worked so hard to build a relationship with to get bipartisan criminal justice reform bill done, and this was a tough moment with me and the chairman, 
But it just so happened that the person I was testifying next to was John Lewis. And I'm like, you know what? I will never be called to serve my country like he was, to stand before billy clubs and get tear gas, to be on buses that are bombed. Um, this man was attacked. I will never be called to that level of courage. And by the way, I don't know if I would have that level of courage. But the least I can do is risk my position in the Senate vis-a-vis -vis my Republicans to at one moment in American history that I think is profoundly important. And I think what Jeff Sessions does do and what he omits, what he does not do, is going to have a profound impact on millions of people in this country. Um, I could not be silent. I, I had to do, make sure I did everything I could to let my voice be heard. So I asked on Twitter today for questions for you. Yes. And the one that was the most popular, the one that most people wanted to ask, relates to this issue of trust and how politicians should comport themselves. A lot of people wanted to know what you thought of President Obama accepting $400,000 to give a speech on Wall Street. Is that something that a Democrat, a former president of the United States should be doing? I know it is normalized that they do it, but is it something that should be done? So two points I want to make with this. First of all, President Obama, do, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cast judgment on you for any decision you make. And by the way, I don't know the details. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what the form is. All I heard last night as I was getting ready to go to bed was $400,000 Wall Street speech. So I don't know the context. It's even hard for me to criticize. But this is what I will say. Um, we have a, a political system that has been perverted pretty badly by the influence of, of money and power. And to the point that um, the, the average American is, is rightful in thinking that, that, uh, that, that, that the, system that we, the systems that we have right now do not serve the highest and best interests. They serve the best interests of the, of the moneyed and the powerful. And I've seen that now, three and a half years down here, how on so many issues, from regulatory issues to legislative issues, I'm astonished at how um, these very powerful forces are able, and I'm seeing it right now with the erosion of elements of Dodd-Frank, um, um, and that, that really, really bothers me. And, and when I was a mayor, I saw it with the bankruptcy laws that were changed. I saw it with how the credit card companies changed, and I saw the real impact on people in my community, and I still live in that community. There's 100 senators, and I don't know where all my Senate colleagues go home to, but I go home to an inner-city, uh, majority African-American community, median household income. I think there's no one that goes home to a community that's poorer than mine. Median household income in my census tract is $14,000 per person. This is a community rich with character, with people, incredible leaders, who, who love their city, not giving up on their city, who see themselves in the context of being on the front lines of the fight for America. And it really bothers me that I, I am in a city that everywhere you look, from the Passaic River to the very soil that we tried to plant crops in, and we ended up having to do them in, in above-ground baskets to create our urban farming in Newark, is a testimony to corporations violating the, the ideals of the free market, outsourcing profits, undermining regulations, poisoning people in some cases quite literally. And, and so uh, the, the Democratic Party, which, and, and I'll tell you this one moment that, that shocked me, because I just I said, where's, where's the American public? When we were talking about a, a CR, which seems to be the only thing we do right around here is continuing resolutions, not having a budget, not setting priorities. But we're sitting in caucus, and they put up the, the CRs, and they were trying to do things. They're negotiating, so like, you get this many, these things called tax expenditures, in other words, tax credits, and they, they get these tax credits, and 
their expenditures because it's going to affect revenue to the federal government. And so when I looked at the list that Harry Reid put up there of what the Democrats were fighting for, some of the stuff that I was fighting for, because I want to expand the earned income tax credit. I want single guys to get more of an earned income tax credit. I think it's one of the best anti-poverty programs we got. The child care tax credit. These were the lists on our side. And then I looked at their side, and I'll never forget the, who was sitting next to me, Claire McCaskill, because some of them I didn't even understand. And I turned to her and I go, what does that mean? And she goes, well, that's a tax break for corporations to allow them to do this. And I'm like, if the American public could just see this comparison, and you can say this, and by the way, Claire McCaskill is considered a, a moderate Dem, somebody on the right of our Democratic Party, but I, I really feel that our party is the one that is focused on fighting an unlevel playing field. I'm going to interject here for a Please. second. This is actually what I'm, I'm trying to get out a bit. And this is what Democrats say, that if the American people could see this comparison, but, but they can. They can see that comparison. I mean, they do know who wants to tax rich people and who doesn't. What they don't seem to buy is that Democrats aren't also part of the same corporate structure. I mean, what they moved towards Trump on when you looked deep into the polling and looked into the focus groups was that, yeah, they knew what he stood for and they knew what Clinton stood for, but they also thought Clinton was just too close to the banks for their comfort. They thought Clinton was too into this system, and they just kind of don't buy it. Right, and, and so, look, but, but what, so first of all, let, let's, that's a perception issue. It's not, we can, agree, can we agree that it's not a substance issue? Who is fighting for, God, I can tell you the fights that I've lost. I voted against the farm bill because of the cutting of food stamps. I didn't even get to see a vote on raising the minimum wage. How can you work a full-time job in America and still live below the poverty line? I can go through all the fights that we lost or tried to win and Republicans uh, 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 and what their position is. So this is not an issue of fact. Donald Trump has been in office for 100 days, and I can go through the rolling back of the fiduciary rule that Tom Perez fought so hard that makes it harder for people to save for retirement uh, uh, because they can't necessarily trust the advice I could go through the thing, letting corporations dump in rivers. How's that going to help coal companies get their jobs back? It's just a lie. So please don't tell me that we're arguing about fact. What we're arguing about is the perception of Secretary Clinton, a person that, frankly, and I, I went to the same, as I, t- I joked with you before, tough, gritty law school that she did. Um, you know, I never even did an interview f- with a corporation. I, I didn't even put on a suit and, and tell me, they're coming through with, offering big salaries to po- folks. I stuck in clinics and was spent my last year in the central ward of Newark, New Jersey, the same neighborhood that I still live in now. Hillary Clinton, and, and this is a hard thing to do to get off the beaten path, she also didn't go to corporate law. Her first decisions in life before politics was anywhere in her future, she was going to work with kids, poor kids. And so I understand we lost an election. I understand that the Clinton brand, before she even began running, was severely damaged. But don't tell me that her agenda was for corporate America. When I sat backstage... Oh, but so, sorry, I'm it, not telling you her agenda was for corporate right. America. What, what it seems to me, and, and I think it's important because if you believe in the things you're talking about, and you do, then it's really important that people buy it in that way. And the thing that I think Secretary Clinton always had trouble explaining away was, okay, why did she give those speeches to Goldman Sachs for that much money? How could she say they wouldn't influence her. Now, in the end, you get a guy who comes in and gets a treasury secretary from Goldman Sachs and a chief economic advisor from Goldman Sachs and on and on down the line. So the distinction you're making on on policy is right, but that's where this sort of, this kind of faux populism takes root in a place of deep mistrust. Or you you had a couple months ago this fear over the 
reimportation with yes. Secretary Sanders and now um, Senator Sanders. And now you guys have come to an agreement on that bill. But when we covered that, what was interesting about covering it was it was hard to, we could have the argument over the actual policy of it, but people didn't buy that it wasn't because of drug company money. Right. And it's a space of motive distrust. It seems like a very, very difficult place for progressive politics to, to take root and to flourish. Right. And so that, that, that's a great example because I, I, that was the first time I ever uh, felt, I mean, before I even went home that night, the, the, my, the Twitterverse was just coming at me, not from the right, which I'm worse, we're, we're used to getting, but suddenly I started seeing this avalanche of people questioning my values, which I really wanted to invite everybody who does that to come walk around the neighborhood I've lived in for the last 20 years and talk to the people that I've been working with in the trenches before I came down here to Washington three years ago uh, and ask me where my heart and soul and passion is. Um, and it was really a frustrating moment for me when I felt like, hey, I'm right on the policy. In fact, the policy, I'm so right that you took Senator Sanders' bill from last Congress, and he and I, uh, and to his credit, we partnered, worked together, and the bill now is so much stronger in consumer protection and safety for folks and still allows drug imports. I'm so proud of that. Forget the perceptions, but it's still something that stings me because of what you can, said, you called it faux populism, but I call it people that are so burned from uh, a system that is problematic, where these corporations are running amok in our, in our political system. I mean, even if you read the Citizens United Supreme Court case, as bad as that was in and of itself, even they were calling for disclosure, not hidden dark money. And then when the Senate had the vote on it, the Republicans beat back the Democrats. Just all the Democrats want to do is pull back the curtain so more people could understand where, where all this money is flowing from. So I actually acknowledge the fact that we have a system that is severely broken. But I, I guess what I get frustrated about, and this conversation is bringing out my frustration, is, is, is every day I watch uh, my colleagues, many of them who are I, I call blue-collar senators, um, who, who are not nationally known names, but they go in and fight like hell. I watch them in hearings. I watch them in caucus meetings for... Uh, Americans in the middle class for poor Americans that will stand up, you know, my senior senator, Senator Menendez, on issues of race, uh, issues of, uh, of poverty, and we're losing these fights. I was with Joe Donnelly, who's up for re-election. I went into his state. The first day we drove crisscross the state. Second day he had me in churches. I'm not sure because he felt I needed prayer, but we were there. Five churches I went and spoke to, spoken with him. But I remember going through a very poor area, um, which frankly is a poor white area, but the, the same issues in many ways, absent maybe, I actually, actually think if you're poor in America, you're getting screwed by the criminal justice system, period. As Brian Stevenson says, we live in a nation where you get a better justice if you're rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And I just said to him, is this a big, uh, a big stronghold for you? And he goes, Corey, this is a very Republican area. And I go, I don't understand how these folks could be Republicans. I just really was looking for his answer. I, I said, we are fully 100% with them on economic issues. Why are they voting uh, uh, um, uh, Republican when you are the kind of guy? And, and he's conservative on issues like guns and choice and the like. And, and I think that's the frustration that you feel from me, which is I, I sincerely see my party trying to do its best to fight, but, but losing out on a lot of that perception issues that you're talking about and making that connection. And that's a responsibility that I take fully and, and something I'm thinking a lot about, about how to 
um, how to break through. But frankly, I'm not as concerned about ultimately the political systems and the wins and losses in terms of elections. Obviously, I want the Democratic Party to win, but I think this is much bigger than our politics, what's going on. And I don't want the story of our generation to be the story on those indices I talked about, whether it's indices on competitiveness or indices on well-being. I don't want to be that nation, that, that, that generation that, that doesn't advance the ball on that and yet sees declines in, in, in standard of living or, or in life expectancy uh, or, or well-being or happiness or, or feeling senses of connection to one another or feeling something I think is really important that we as Americans feel a sense of common cause. And, 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 and if there's anything I can dedicate my politics to, um, and the reason why I won't yield in trying to forge a, a different way from the politics that I despise, frankly, but I want to dedicate my politics to trying to rekindle what I think is a courageous empathy, our ability to truly see each other as Americans. And by that, I mean two things. I mean the ability to see each other, whether we're Republican or Democrat, because we tend to, to crouch right away as soon as we hear this is a Republican idea or, or a Democratic idea. We tend to now believe that the other side is so bad or so evil that we can't even touch them. And then there's another area of sight that I really worry about where we're not seeing each other, and that's the folks who are struggling in this country, that because we are so obscuring ourselves from one another that we don't feel common cause in the struggles of others. The reason why the civil rights movement was so successful is because those activists found ways to expose injustice, prick the moral imagination uh, of others, uh, to raise the consciousness of other country, and get everybody in common cause fighting it. Well, there is... I tell this people all the time, you make a mistake if you are focusing now all of your energy and activism on Donald Trump. First of all, I don't think he's worthy of all that energy and that focus. It can't just be about what you're against. It's got to be about what we are for as a country. And what I want to remind people of, and this, this is where I get angry because of where I live, there's reasons under President Obama for us to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans marching in the streets because of the injustice of it all. And just because we live in a sense of privilege, and the most toxic type of privilege for any American to enjoy is, hey, I know there's real problems out there, but they're not affecting me and my family, so it's not really a problem. And, and, and so I'll give you just two quick examples that infuriate me. One happening everywhere, and one a trip I took to North Carolina as a New Jersey senator. The, the one that infuriates us all is, Hey, Ronald Reagan, even Mitch McConnell, thought that Superfund sites were a crisis and a problem in America. And they did something about it. They reauthorized a tiny little tax on polluting industries. And trust me, you're burning coal, you're burning natural gas, you're burning uh, oil. You are externalizing some of the costs of that business. And so it's a tiny little tax to get us money to clean up these orphan sites. An orphan site is no corporation to clean up that Superfund site. And they did the right thing. Ronald Reagan, Mitch McConnell, Congress. That lapse had a sunset provision in it. So I come to Congress knowing we have Superfund problems. But, but nobody will take up the bill on the other side to do something about this. But now I have something else. I've got longitudinal data now. Decades of these Superfunds. And the problem with it, the fact that we don't have the resources in America to clean up these Superfund sites, guess what's happening to Superfund sites? They're proliferating. There are more Superfund sites. And so now what's the data that we know about Superfund sites? Princeton published some of this data. If you live within three miles of a Superfund site, I have two Superfund sites in and around Newark. 
your chances of having a child with autism or birth defects goes up about 20%. That, to me, the fact that I can be comfortable right here when, when there are parents, pregnant women right now, who live in Newark by an Agent Orange site, I mean, that's out. Talk about common cause. If somebody came in here, if Kim Jong-il, you know, if, 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 a, if a leader of another country said today that I'm going to go after uh, children and find ways to poison them so that thousands of American children will be in jeopardy, that might rile things up. But we don't feel an urgency to do something obvious that Reagan did. But let me give you another example, because this one implicates all of us. I went to North Carolina to meet with some African-American activists, grassroots activists, because they lived in hell. And, and what's the hell they live in? I was begging the Obama administration, writing letters to uh, uh, the EPA administrator to please call this what it is, environmental racism. Because most of us who go every day, and I implicate myself in this, I don't know where this suit was made. I don't know if it was made by people in conditions that violate my values. I buy food every single day. That, that do I really think about what it took to make this food? Well, let me tell you about this area in North Carolina. This is the lowlands of North Carolina. North Carolina has 9 million pigs. New Jersey has 9 million people. Pigs produce 10 times the feces that a human being does. And so we have race, waste treatment plants to deal with human feces in New Jersey, but they don't have those for pigs. Now, most of these pigs, in fact, the largest company is a Chinese-owned company locating themselves in historically African-American communities. One Vietnam veteran told me about leaving to go fight in the Vietnam War and coming home and becoming a prisoner in his house because what they do with the pig feces, I went down and I saw it, is they put them in these massive lagoons and they spray that feces over fields. I stood there in the stench on a street and watched it mist along. And these families now can't open their windows, can't run their air conditioning, they have respiratory problems, cancers. The, the data, can't argue about that, because what we are doing to produce the bacon we enjoy, corporations externalizing their costs, not dealing with the waste in a responsible fashion, but allowing people around them to be poisoned, it's going on every single day. And when they try to use a political system and elect somebody down there, local leaders to fight for them, city council, guess what the corporations get together and do? They fund the campaigns of the people that are pro the corporations. Now, to think that as an American, I'm not somehow involved in this, in these broken food systems that we have, that hurt us so much, that drive our taxpayer dollars. You go to a bodega in Newark, why is a Twinkie product cheaper than an apple? Because we subsidize it with our tax dollars. And so I, am, I don't know if there's anybody more progressive on issues like this than I am. But yet, my call to us is not, to, not the politics as usual. If we don't see each other, if we can't begin to connect to other Americans, whether they are factory workers in coal country or, or in, the, in the Midwest or inner city folks, if we are starting to see each other more as the other, where we lose our American connection, but we see you as the party label you are, as the geographic region you are, these are the things that I think are really hurting us, is our failure to see 
the connections that we have and how we're all in this together. And that's what I'm hoping our politics can begin to better speak to. And the people that I revere, look, Lincoln was not the perfect president. I mean, I, I love the stories about him and Frederick Douglass. But at the end of the Civil War, his second inaugural address, I, I couldn't help but think about that as Trump got up there for his inaugural address. I could understand if how Lincoln, who wins this election, literally his election night, he's sitting by a telegraph machine trying to wait for results, close, thought it was going to be close, ends up winning an electoral landslide. New Jersey doesn't support him. Um, he could now turn around and say, it's about retribution. But his message is malice towards none, charity towards all. FDR. I'm going to, before we go through a history of better inaugurals than Donald Trump's, because that could take a little while. Um, you talked about not I said the familiarity back there. I said the problem with him and I is that familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> he, he, like, we know each other too well. This is just frustrating to me. You talked about getting beyond politics as usual. So I would like to, I worry that our thinking about policy has really narrowed under Trump. That the zone of the possible has become so sharp that a lot that needs to be discussed for the problems we have is not getting discussed. So I want to go through some ideas that are out there and get sort of a lightning round of your just impressions of them. It doesn't have to be support or not support, but just what, you, what they bring up in you. Okay. Universal child allowance. I mean, I think, I think that we have to start getting to this idea that we're investing in kids. There's, some great, there's a great study by Harvard about uh, child poverty comparing to other nations. Why do they have less than the United States of America? And they come down to the simple idea that we're not investing in children uh, enough. And the fact that 20% of American children, 20% are living in poverty. And by the way, again, poverty is a very powerful line that kids under poverty have all kind of more difficult outcomes. Only one in nine, one, excuse me, only nine out of 100 children uh, that are in, in poverty go to college, for example. So anything to get children, in my opinion, uh, to, to have us as a country to understand that this is our most valuable natural resource, that, that, that we invest in cultivating that resource, I feel it's something we should explore. Limiting Supreme Court terms to 12, 18, whatever. Never thought of that. Never, really? thought, never thought about it. Do you think the stakes of a Supreme Court fight now are too high? That, that's what I'm getting at with that question. When you're talking about having somebody serve on the court for 40 years, yeah. plausibly even more in, in some cases, uh, that seems really high. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I saw, I witnessed, again, this is the first time in our lifetime that we witnessed what happened with Garland and Gorsuch. I mean, that has so changed the American process of nominating street court justice that suddenly took it out of a, I mean, Bill Clinton literally called, I think it was Hatch, to give him his first idea, and Hatch said, no, he's too liberal, and, and that's why he went to the Justice of All, and he got confirmed. There used to be a far more collaborative process but now, um, I think that a lot of the issues of, in American society are so dramatic that the stakes are so high. I mean, why was, I mean, Elizabeth Warren said this to you in your podcast, and she's absolutely right. Why was there, before the Gorsuch nomination even got it going, why were there tens and tens of millions of dollars being of dark money being spent for his nomination? Because here's a guy that favors, I read his cases, many of his cases, favors corporations over individuals, corporations over uh, uh, workers' rights. I can go on and on and on. So tons of corporate money poured in, 
and most of us don't, I know the details of this because I was running around the country during that period campaigning for my colleagues. I was in Montana, I was in Indiana, I was in Ohio. They were doing it on the, in the 10 Democrats that are up that are up in that were, are in states that Donald Trump won. I mean, it was a very sophisticated way that they were going after these folks. So the stakes have become incredibly high, and we live in a culture now that where all this money is pouring into it. So I don't know if limiting the terms would be diffusive, but I do believe that the 60-vote margin was something that would force presidents to moderate their choices, which would have been a good solution to that. That's why I really became a believer uh, through that process that the 60-vote margin is a good thing. Letting anyone of any age buy into Medicare? Um, I am, uh, my knee-jerk reaction, first of all, I, be, I believe ultimately in ideas like single-payer or Medicare for all. I, I, I just fundamentally, I don't know how we get it done in this environment, but fundamentally having a public option um, or Medicare is something that I fundamentally believe in and think it would simplify so many of the problems we have, improve health care, lower prescription drug costs, for example, if we use that negotiating power like Canada does. There's so much good that would come from that. And by the way, that wasn't always a progressive idea. It, 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 in the past, it's been an idea of people on the right. And I have had honest conversations with very high-level Republican people uh, in this town that I've become friends with who concede to me that this would be a much better way to go, much simpler, much cleaner, uh, and would help us get to be a country that had not the worst health outcomes of, of our competitor nations, but get back to starting to have some of the better healthcare outcomes and actually create incentives in the right places, not incentives to run more tests and to perform more procedures, but more incentives for preventative care and healthy lifestyles. Illiberalism on campus. These stories we're hearing were it's, it's, college activists. I, I read a story that just offended me um, where, where someone got in trouble for putting up a Trump sign because they felt like it was like a microaggression and created a hostile environment on their dorm hall. And um, I, I just, you know, look, I just have, I have little patience for that. I, mean, I think the marketplace of ideas is so important in campuses. I mean, even what I, the way I see people being treated, I mean, God forbid I ever sort of defend, I, I feel like it's Baltimore, and I don't want to say the name, but um, she writes really dramatic books like uh, Betrayal and stuff like that. Um, you know, what's happening to her right now, uh, people not even wanting to allow her on campus to speak. Uh, I literally don't know who you're talking about. Good, good. <laughs> who, who, who are we not naming? I will, I'll whisper it to you anyway. Oh, Ann Coulter, okay. <laughs> I didn't hear that. But anyway, <laughs> no, I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and I think the right is, is perfectly within their right to be thinking, what, what hypocrisy on, on our side? And it's like where the ACLU, um, even who frustrates me sometimes, when I was a local politician, I had this great conversation with a Democratic senator and said, who was also a local leader before, and got me used to wrestle with the ACLU. I remember when I wanted to put, I did, I put, millions of dollars worth of cameras all over Newark in public places, and the ACLU got in my face, and we eventually, I said, okay, you write this operating procedures for it. But, you know, some of the, I grew up seeing them representing the Ku Klux Klan and their ability to march. And, and uh, you know, if you push and suppress those ideas and don't bring them out into the common discourse and allow people to develop ideas against them and, and, and raise the level of your debate, the, the level of your, the, the quality of your argument, I think it's crazy that on college campuses we're creating these cocoons. And again, just as a black guy, you know, I, I'm actually 
have had experiences from my early ages of being called racist, hateful names. Um, and I, I'm actually happy that I wasn't shielded from that ugliness within our society. It taught me so many lessons from, from seeing and witnessing um, that. Uh, so, so, so I think we have a problem with how far things have gotten. CRISPR and gene editing programs that are starting to come online. How do you think about what those will do to our society? Um, so I, I took this great class at law school about sort of the medical ethics and where things were going. And I still remember this case about a couple that uh, formed a zygote and froze it and then got a divorce. And then they were fighting over who gets the, that. And it's like these new areas of law that we just don't even know how to think about. Um, so gene editing in general, it, it, it's sort of like the same thing with um, GMO foods. I mean, if this is something that's going to help human life and it's going to help um, cure diseases, um, I think that science should be bold. We should, we should be boldly pushing with science, innovation, technology. And I really worry about uh, government agencies that are not moving at the speed of innovation and actually restricting American innovation, whether it's in the medical sciences or I went after the head of the FAA on drones because drone innovations were going on more in France in uh, other countries than they were here because we didn't create a regulatory regime that allowed people to explore and experiment. And I said to him in a hearing, I said, if you were around during Orville and Wilbur Wright, we would have never gotten off the ground and the airplane industry might have taken off in other places. So I worry about where government is undermining innovation in all fields. And I do think that we should have our morals should guide us um, um, uh, ultimately. And I'm not looking, and I know when people start talking about gene editing, they start thinking about uh, at least I do, I flash quickly to horrible chapters of humanity and where that could go. Um, but I don't want to undermine the positive that we can get from uh, such technology that can enhance uh, human life, alleviate human suffering, open up more opportunity. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that scientists are going to continue to explore these areas. Do you think artificial intelligence is a threat to human life? Yes. But do I think we should be continuing to explore artificial intelligence? Yes. Am I ticked off that my president... Uh, put forward a budget cutting things like science and technology. Meanwhile, the Chinese and the Russians, who can't ever, 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 ever in your and my lifetime, and our children's lifetimes, they're not going to ever be able to beat us tank for tank or worship for worship. But where they're doubling down right now is things that, I mean, AI is actually a really great new, new frontier of hacking. And, and, and it was a new frontier in the cyber wars, blockchain technology, all of this stuff, which our competitors are, are, are moving into. We as a country, both in public and private spaces, should be investing in AI, investing in new technologies, new innovations, and, and new science. It's crazy that America, in terms of percentage of our GDP spent in research and science, um, is, is starting to fall behind in comparison to other nations who are rising up knowing that that's the secret for future global dominance is innovation, technology, and the growth of your economy. A universal basic income. Um, I've actually been kicking this idea around with my team because, um, so I, I want my party to, to, to get back to having a, uh, I, I, and I shouldn't say get back to having, because we already have it, but I want us to have a bolder voice on uh, economic growth. Like I told you, the reason why I'm here, what I learned from my mom and dad sitting around a table, my dad who moved to Washington, D.C., this is where my mom and dad met when they came out of college, my mom came out of a black college called Fisk University. My father came out of a historical black college called North Carolina Central. They came to Washington, D.C. 
And it was activists in this town that, like the Urban League, that pushed to get companies to hire their first blacks. And my father happened to be the first black hired by a department store, an oil company. Then he became IBM's first black salesman in the entire Virginia region. And, and, and it was nice to become, uh, you know, to get in with a tech company that was booming. And so I'm sitting around a kitchen table when I'm growing up, and I'd often hear stories about two things. One, about this importance of inclusion, like fairness, justice, equality, and not leaving people on the sidelines. And, how, and my parents were really progressive for a kid growing up in the 70s on gay and lesbian issues. And, just the, the, and our kitchen table is full of this kind of diversity. And my parents just really felt like there's still fight left. We still have a lot of work to do until this country treats everybody equally. But the other thing they talked about was growing economic opportunity. They were two people that believed that um, we had to create economic growth. And so this is really what I worry about is I want our party to be the party that excites people. We are the party of innovation, the Democrats. We are the party of, 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 of economic opportunity. We're the party of um, ideas and small business, all the things that to me excite us about expanding opportunity for all Americans. But part and parcel of that has to be the party of technology and the party that understands that technology is transforming uh, American life and American work life. And so I know there's a lot of been, uh, articles been written about the sharing economy and, and, and all of this. And, and we've got to get this right because I do worry about um, the ability to strip away from folks. Um, you know, I, th- I think unions actually are, are in, in, in the American context, are really important. And they, they, they are one of the best ways to anchor people in the middle class. And so now you have all these people that are working where they're making some of their money off of rideshare, they're making some of their money off their Airbnb. And we've got to be a party that begins to think, okay, what is work going to look like um, in 2020, in 2025? And how can we make sure that if you're an American that gets up every day, plays by the rules, works hard, there's a few things you should get if you are one of those fortunate people on the planet Earth to be able to say those four words. Only 4.5% of humanity can say, I am an American. And there should be certain things that you, that you get. And I think those should be access to the greatest education from the time you are in the womb, <laughs> okay? That you should be, and that's, for me, nurse-family partnerships is the first part of education. Is nurses, we know, know this, a dollar invested in that creates about $5.60 in terms of e- economic uh, benefits for that, that child over their lifetime in terms of what taxpayers will get back. So we should be the country of education. We should be the country... Of, of health security, that no one ever should have to stress that if they get sick or if they have diabetes or some chronic condition or if they get into an accident doing stupid stuff like I did, creating ice jumps as a kid on my dirt bike and flying in the air and landing and breaking a leg or something, we should have health security. Education, health security. You should be able to retire with security. It is unconscionable to me that we live in a country where there's still four to five million Americans who are on Social Security, but it's so meager, they live below the poverty line, and all the stress and insecurity in their latter years. So again, retirement security, health, education. One of those things should, though, be that if you're willing to work hard, play by the rules, that you should have economic security, some level of economic security. And so this idea of a guaranteed income, which is a policy idea I'm I'm, I'm now uh, exploring a lot more um, boldly because of the technology interests that I have and what I think work of the future might look like, and because we need to get rid of the insecurity around that issue. Uh, because if you're an American, you should have economic security. You shouldn't live with those kind of fear, that kind of fear. That four-point platform, that sounds a little bit like the beginnings. <laughs> um, um, 
I, I mean, I've been doing this job for a minute, and... <laughs> no, but that's... But this is the problem. I, and I want to be very serious with you, because my staff has heard me go off about this a lot. I worry if that's the only bucket the Democrats have, is the security bucket. I don't want Democrats just to be a party that says, you get the security on the four points I just made. And by the way, security for me also means that if you're a transgender kid, you know, 30% of gay and lesbian kids in America report not going to school because of fear. So security is not getting bullied. Security is knowing that if you do the equal work as a man that you get the same pay. There's a whole bucket that when I was running around the country, I would speak passionately to before crowds in, 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 in Flint, before crowds in, in, in St. Louis, and people would applaud. And people associate the Democratic Party with those things, minimum wage, all of those things. But that can't be the only bucket for our party. We've also got a bucket, we've also got to have a bucket that's about the future, about hope, about opportunity, about expanding, about getting people excited again. And then the last bucket, if you ask me what a platform for 2020, because I'm running in 2020 for re-election. Um, <laughs> um, um, but the, the, those are the first two buckets. I think that it should be security, and that's a big bucket of all the things I talked about, and it should be opportunity. But then there's got to be another bucket. And, and I really believe that this is how the response to the era of Donald Trump. And, 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 and I'm sorry it sounds corny, uh, but I don't think it's a corny word at all, but it's got to be about love. It's got to be about the connections we have to each other. Patriotism is love of country, and love of country necessitates that we love each other, that we see each other's value, that we see each other's worth, that we know if your kid does better in school, in your school, and it might be in a different state than mine, but your kid getting that great education, I'm invested in that because your kid's succeeding in to my success. Where we've become now is a country where we preach tolerance. Like, that's the great aim. And tolerance is, a, to me, a, a repugnant <laughs> a, a sort of ambition for any nation. It's just I'm stomaching your right to be different and not seeing your value, not seeing your worth. We've got to move beyond that. And, and so I'm hoping that, that those two policy buckets plus this bucket, which I think is really important, it's got to work through the cynicism that you were getting to before about our politics. And, and, I, and this is where, this is maybe why I will, I'm sticking where I am as a New Jersey senator, because I want to tell people <laughs> that cynicism is a refuge for cowards. That anybody who throws up their hands about a system and surrenders to, oh, it's broken, it's rigged, it's what, whatever words we want to use, and doesn't recognize not their, only their power to change it, but their obligation like, I'll go back to John Lewis. None of, you and me, we've had a very easy existence as Americans. We've really benefited from, luxuriated in the benefits of previous generations. But we still have those challenges. I could talk to you about families around Superfund sites, senior citizens in poverty. When are we going to make our great sacrifices to solve those problems? And the crazy thing is, we're not going to solve them alone. We have to solve them through the unusual coalitions that have always been America. America has never done big things without creating unusual coalitions. The Civil Rights Movement was not just won by African Americans. We created unusual coalitions that brought people together to achieve unusual things in the course of human events. And so if, if we don't get to that third bucket, and I love the first two policy buckets, I can talk, as you now see, I can filibuster all night long. But, I, but that third one is very important to me, is to us getting back to being a country of patriotism. and doesn't define it. It's used now. How is patriotism used in politics? It's used as a cudgel. It's used as a sword to cut people down. You're not wearing your flag pin, sir, or you're not as patriotic as me. 
Or if anybody comes to me and tells me, well, that's a real American over there, well, what the hell am I? We're all Americans. Don't try to divide us. Don't try to use patriotism as a way of putting people down and adding to your, uh, uh, to your uh, authenticity, your greatness. The reality is, is patriotism has nothing to do about you. It has to do about your ability to serve others, to be there for others, to love others, and to elevate others. Senator Cory Booker, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Senator Booker for being here. It is always a pleasure to talk to him. Thank you to all of you for listening, to my producers, Bert Pinkerton and Peter Leonard. Uh, this is a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and it will be back 